0: everybody good evening welcome to evoke therapy program broadcast i'm dr brad Reedy. today is tuesday august 15th 2023 tonight we're going to be talking about recovery specifically what it looks like or, or the lessons that, that i've learned in working in, in willard's therapy and working with people who are struggling with substance use disorder before i get into that though i want to make the announcement that we have our next iteration of a class that i really look forward to conscious a conscious parenting seminar. It's an all-day seminar from 9:30 a.m. to 4:30 p.m. mountain time with an hour for lunch. This is a small group, so we keep it small. We have a limited an, a number of attendees so that we can uh, have a dialogue. So beyond me just lecturing and talking and teaching, you can bring up your specific questions about your specific family, your specific circumstances and we can have a dialogue back and forth. It's $400 per person for the full day, $700 if there are two people on a shared screen. You can contact intensives at evoketherapy.com for more information. So I want to talk, first of all, of course, about some addiction. I want to talk tonight about uh, codependency to some extent. Um, but ultimately, I want to talk about, in, in a really accessible way, what recovery is and what it looks like and how it shows up in the wilderness. I get asked this question oftentimes. What's the difference between the approach based on experimentation, the approach that you use, based on whether somebody's experimenting, abusing substances, or addiction. And frankly, the fact of the matter is, the difference is almost negligible. There's virtually no difference. Good therapy for somebody suffering from substance use disorder is good therapy for somebody that has no issues with substances. Especially you know, when you think about somebody who's experimenting or using with, that's underage, using with, using alcohol or illicit drugs, you're already in a situation where somebody is violating social norms, social expectations. They're they're going against their own development, meaning that the closer or sooner that somebody is introduced to substances and substance use in their lives, the, the, the younger it is, the more the data shows, the more likely they are to identify as having a substance use problem later in life. We also know because of development that the brain gets wired for addiction, the sooner, more repetitive uh, that, that we're introduced to substances. So in a lot of senses, you're, you're really, what I talk about with with clients all the time is, even if at this point, I, I don't make, I almost spend no energy on trying to discern whether or not somebody's an addict or not, whether somebody qualifies for that label or that threshold or not in fact in trying to to qualify somebody like that you're just going to meet with resistance anyway so what i will say to them is this is just what it looks like to be a healthy and a whole person i think the same is true of, of recovery from codependency from sex and love addiction from gambling from substances right you're talking about balance and so tonight i want to talk about the principles I'll introduce you to some of the steps. I'll introduce you to the seven challenges, to some of the other models. But essentially, it's all teaching the same thing. Individuals who begin using drugs as juveniles, as I mentioned, are at a greater risk of becoming addicted compared to those who begin drug use as an adult due to the immaturity of the teenage brain, particularly the part of the brain that controls impulses. You know, the the the, the young person's brain needs a lot of stimulation to experience... A sense of novelty, a sense of a, a rush, a high if you will. I've been thinking about this a lot lately as an aging adult, the aging adult that I am, that, that oftentimes it's the most simple pleasure. Sitting out on my back deck as the sun goes down, looking out at the trees can bring me a great deal of pleasure. Whereas a teenage brain is going to find that not very stimulating. They're not going to find that to be as, as, as pleasurable as an adult is. So if you wire a brain to to be stimulated to have a a, a dopamine release, then the baseline is going to be um, is going to be lower. The baseline for that that dopamine release is going to be lower. So you're gonna you're gonna have that drive that that addiction toward going back to the same substance, going back to the same exciting behavior. I was watching a panel some years ago, where it was it was mostly dealing with it was a it was a a conference. dealt with addiction and they were talking specifically about young adults in treatment on this panel and somebody asked the question what would you say to a young person abusing substances who thinks that they don't have a problem And, and and several of the people went on and answered and back to my initial point tonight my response was i would just talk to them about life one of the things that i i i've learned lately or been thinking about lately is that good therapy questions the whole personality. This is an idea from Carl Jung. The good therapy really puts into question the entire personality. That that if we simply reduce the individual to a symptom and try to manage or cope or deal with that, we miss the entire picture. And and while we might be able to to accomplish some symptom reduction, the pathology, the issue, the the unexpressed feelings, the, the unmet need shows up in some other area of life. So if I were presenting at this this symposium that I was just describing, where this question would ask, I would say, it makes no difference to me. Just like when the client asked me, when the client made the point to me one, one day and said to me, I am not an addict, and started to give all the evidence for why he didn't qualify for that particular label, I said, great, let's keep it that way. Let's do this treatment that we're doing here so that you won't fall into that, that hole. This, is, this can be thought of as preventative as much as it can be thought of in terms of treatment. In fact, I talk about this all the time in parenting. Prevention is essentially the same approach as treatment. And that's why those of us who are in the treatment field, right, treating people with mental health issues, can come back and talk about mental health and communication and the building blocks for a healthy psyche, for a healthy connection, for a healthy participation in the world. So what I said to him, what I say to you tonight is that's fine. And I think a lot of parents get caught up in the label. A lot of siblings, a lot of people, if you're watching your spouse. And the fact of the matter, and you learn this in your own recovery as a co-dependent, as a co-addicted person. You learn very quickly that it's not within your purview. It's not really any of your business to whether or not to label somebody with an addiction or not. The reason that people want that, that label assigned and informally given to the person is because then it justifies for them certain decisions, certain boundaries, certain limits, certain consequences. But in recovery, when we learn things like no is a, is a, is a complete sentence, and that what other people think about you is none of your business, and that you're allowed to be a self, when we start to learn those principles, which are true of all of us, we don't need to decide whether or not our child or our spouse, or our sibling, our 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 adult parents are addicts or alcoholics or not. It doesn't matter to us because the boundaries that we decide to set are virtually the same. Really, what I what I look for with somebody who's struggling with substance use disorder, with somebody who's struggling with addictions, with somebody who's struggling with anything, with 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 self-sabotaging decisions and I think we can think of addiction in a in a broader sense as a self-sabotaging behavior that when I when I look at somebody who's suffering from that, I'm really looking at somebody who is in the position of surrender. Right? Are they at that point in their life where they realize, look, my best thinking got me here. You'll hear that if you go to a meeting. My best thinking got me here. I'm open to suggestion. I'm open to coaching. I'm open to mentoring. I'm open to therapy. I'm open to advice. It's one of the things that I see with young people is my, my, my favorite indicator to look for on their readiness to, to leave the program and to participate in the selection of the next program. I look for the, that surrender. When somebody says, when I say, you know, what do you look for in the, in the next stage of your treatment, the next stage of, of your support? And when they say something like, well, I don't know. I don't know what I need. I thought I knew, and that's what got me here. So I, I, I really, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust my parents. I'm going to trust the experts. There, there, there's, there's that feeling that I need help. There's a humility there. There's an openness there. There's a I'm learning from my mistakes kind of attitude there. When people get very entitled and specific and demanding of what comes next or what has to happen, you're seeing that lack of surrender. I remember th- this idea of surrender, which is a principle that I think that a lot of people struggle with. But this story that, that I learned many years ago, I think illustrates it metaphorically as well as anything. It's a, it's a fictitious story of a, of a lifeguard watching over the beach. And we're watching this lifeguard. We'll, we'll we'll turn all the genders into male just to make it simple. The 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 lifeguard is watching the ocean. And somebody out in the ocean starts to struggle. And some of the observers look out and see the man struggling. He's starting to scream for help and look at the lifeguard. And The lifeguard makes eye contact and, and sees the guy struggling in, in this reptile in the ocean. And then the lifeguard, he continues to to scan the beach and to look around. Moments later, the cries for help get more serious. Lifeguard, again, makes eye contact, looks out there. The, the people around him are seeing that he's observing. Moments later, after he w- looks around a little bit more, there's a there's a less intense, less, less uh, quieter uh, call for help by the person that's struggling in, in swimming. The lifeguard gets down from his tower, swims out to the ocean, and brings the guy into safety. Somebody walks up to the lifeguard afterwards and says, why did you wait so long? I I know that you saw him before you went out and saved him. And the lifeguard says, if I would have went out there when he first asked for help, he was too strong and he probably would have drowned us both. I had to wait until he was weak enough to accept the help. Now of course this is just a metaphor and any lifeguard is going to respond to somebody asking for help but we understand what that looks like and we understand what that feels like. I've heard lifeguards in real life say that part of the, the use for their, their orange flotation device that they use part of it at times is to create distance and to subdue swimmers who are struggling to, to, to stay above water and will oftentimes inadvertently take the lifeguard down with them. i will use that that flotation device to subdue or create distance between them and the swimmer. So for all of us, there, there, there comes a point, even if it's just us in therapy, if it's just us in our lives, there comes a point when we're willing to accept the help. We're willing to ask for it. We're willing to consider that we don't have all the answers, that somebody else might have wisdom to offer us that could be a benefit to us. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm just looking for signs of surrender for people when when I'm I'm making my assessment. Dr. David Sedlock describes addictive thinking as a person's inability to make consistently healthy decisions in his or her own behalf. He points out that this is not a moral failure, and that's something you'll hear a lot. It's not a moral failure of a person's willpower, but rather a disease of the will. And inability to use the will. The peculiarity of addictive thinking, he says, is the inability to reason with oneself, right? They become unreasonable. They justify all sorts of situations and circumstances in support of the continued use of the the substance. Drugs replicate the spiritual deficit that addicts feel that sense of connection. One of my favorite. TED Talks, maybe, um, I think it's my favorite TED Talk, is by Johan Hari, and it's entitled, Everything That We Thought We Knew About Addiction Is Wrong. And he essentially, I'm going to give you, I'm going to spoil it for you, but it's still worth watching the 15-minute video. He concludes that the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence or sobriety, but the opposite of addiction is connection. That's why the community of AA is so important. It's that fellowship, that 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 connection that they feel that that moment when you tell your story when when you when you get sent there because you you've been arrested for a DUI you've lost your marriage whatever the circumstances are the the poor choices the horrible ways in which you've hurt people and you tell your story to somebody and the group or the individuals in the group say you're in the right place have a seat beside me that's the healing bomb that's the healing medicine Drugs replicate the spiritual deficit that addicts feel, that sense of connection and transcendence with the divine that fills the individual with meaning, peace, love, and transcendence. When I have talked to young people in my practice, specifically in the Willers, about this idea that all they're seeking for, all they're getting out of that high is that feeling that comes when we feel loved, when we feel like we belong, when we feel like our life has meaning and purpose that's larger than ourselves. The, the, when I when I talk about that, when I present that idea to young people, they are all in. I have them because they 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 can resonate with that sense. Speaking of surrender, we hear about the term rock bottom. Really, it's about changing a, a perspective of the person struggling from addiction. People quit drinking and using drugs for the same reason that they start to feel better. Rock bottom is nothing more than a change in perception where abstinence is seen as a lesser distress than the use of chemicals. And and, and that's an important thing to, to realize that part of what we're offering to people that are struggling is that there's a better way. When somebody says, I've heard this before, I've heard young people ask, what's in it for me? And I've heard them get criticized from older adults, from parents. Saying, look how selfish and narcissistic they sound. And I've said, but that's the right question. If we're trying to, for for lack of a better phrase, sell them on the idea of sobriety and abstinence, it's very appropriate to ask, what's in it for me? Why would I do that? And the answer, of course, It's to feel better. The same reason that they got into it. Speaking of relapse, relapse doesn't have to go back to square one. I've heard people talk about relapse in terms of flare-ups. And I've never seen, I've never agreed with any models that have zero tolerance in terms of treatment. That doesn't mean that you compromise all of your values all of the time and that you're just, you're you're basically subject to the whims of the moment. I'm not saying that. But it has to be more complex than, than sobriety abstinence or or relapse there have to be nuances to it for it to make sense and, and part of what you rely on when you're working with somebody who's who's relapsed is how much have they integrated the recovery lessons already because you you lean on those right you make use of those you reference those you call those out you you evoke the wisdom that has gone dormant somebody who's in a in a mere flare up using that parlance somebody who's in a mere flare flare up doesn't regress all the way back to that old type of thinking all right they're still they're still within reach relapse i like to think of relapse as a as a full blown regression into old ways of thinking again i think that the 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 recovery thinking has gone dormant so it still can be accessed but somebody in in relapse is displaying, demonstrating that old kind of thinking, that old kind of responding to life. Therapists, sponsors, or mentors can help all of us recognize relapse, recognize our old thinking patterns. When we try to convince addicts of the fallacy of their thinking, it's like telling somebody that it is her, her belief, that his or her belief in the law of gravity, gravity is a delusion. It is the height of futility to expect an addictive thinker to abandon that concept of reality and accept ours instead. And yet, the average layperson thinks that the solution to addiction is you got a lecture to them. I even remember I had a group of recovery professionals come out and visit me when I was in the wilderness some years ago. And there were several of the clients and the students in the group talking about that they still wanted to go home and use. That they thought now that they could manage it. And the person that was leading the tour pulled me aside and said, you got to say something to these kids. You got to point out that, that that's just not reasonable thinking, not rational thinking. And I, I listened and I, and I spent some time with them. I said, first of all, I can get the kids to say what I want them to say by, by using enough leverage. And I have plenty out here. But I'd rather hear the truth from them. And if that's what they still believe, That means that I understand that we still have work to do in this area. And number two, you don't know that they're wrong. You really don't. And that's one of the limitations that I see in the treatment field is that people that are in recovery, people that are sober, that are practicing abstinence and a program often don't understand the mechanisms that that work in treatment to help somebody else. They know what worked for them. Oftentimes it was a it was a metaphorical two by four to the side of the head that woke them up. But but oftentimes people that are in recovery from, from addiction will treat people that aren't, that are abusing substances or other issues that are addictive or compulsive. They'll often see everything as a, as a as a nail. They'll see themselves as a hammer and every other person as a nail. And tonight, if if nothing else, I want to expose you to, to what the research has shown us is the most effective way to deal with people that are struggling with substance abuse disorder, substance use disorder. Addicts must lose their faith in their current reasoning power. They must accept the possibility of another version of reality from someone they trust. I'm going to read that again. Addicts must lose faith in their current reasoning power. And they must accept the possibility of another version of reality from someone that they trust. The key is the trust. The key is love. And if they feel that agenda of control and domination, it's much more likely to result in resistance. So there has to be patience and compassion and love and waiting. You do it in a place like a wilderness therapy program that we run, and you find that those messages are, are much more impactful. Right? You can get a lot accomplished in a shorter period of time. But the fact of the matter is, beating somebody over the head with the message that they're wrong and that you're right doesn't work. I love this because this speaks specifically to the non-identified patient. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time from the book, Addictive Thinking, by Abraham Twersky. He says. The mother of a young woman who was destroying himself with alcohol and other drugs could not understand how he could be oblivious to the disastrous effects that chemicals were having on his life. She asked for help in dealing with him. And I quote, the quote is, but don't tell me, she said, I have to put him out of the house or that I should not bail him out of jail, she said. I don't want to hear that. I responded, please tell me how much is two plus two, but don't say four she had been unable to see that her own thinking was no less distorted than her son's. I'm going to say a bold thing tonight that until the codependent, the the, the parent, the spouse, the brother, the sister, until they realize, come to terms with the fact, that in so many ways, their thinking is as distorted and dysfunctional as the person suffering from the addiction, until that happens, Family recovery won't progress. And by the way, let me be as clear and explicit as I can. When I train therapists, I teach the exact same thing to the therapist. I say, until you can realize, come to terms with your own pathology, your own mental illness, your own neuroses, your own complexes, until you can come to, to some kind of awareness of those, and that those are, are your, your main projects to grapple with for the rest of your life, you're not going to be that helpful to the people that you serve. And the, the, the most interesting thing is that people that love people that are struggling with addiction have the exact same excuses for not getting help, not going to meetings, not going to therapy, not getting treatment as the addicts themselves. It doesn't apply to me. I'm different. I don't have a problem. These people are worse than me. Right? You can hear the the, the mother of a, of a child suffering from addiction say those things just as easily as you're gonna hear from the child or the spouse or the brother, the sister, the child. The original context of codependency were developed to acknowledge the responses and behaviors people develop from living with an alcoholic or substance abuser. But let me just tell you this. I want to be as clear as I can. There there are people that that are the parents of, the spouses of, the siblings of, the children of people suffering from addiction that are relatively low on the codependent scale. And there are people that are extraordinarily high on the codependent scale who don't have anybody in their immediate circle who are suffering from these kinds of disorders and diseases. So it's not a simple cause and effect, right? It's a way of being that tends to form together. Again, one of my favorite things that I've ever seen, and I've seen it more than once, my favorite thing that I ever see is when a parent or a sibling, I've seen it with siblings, who's not struggling with substance use disorder can say to the person struggling with addiction, My issues are just as severe as yours. They might not show up as obviously as yours, but they are still life-threatening. They are still dangerous. They are still damaging to my life. Co-addiction focuses on keeping things the same. Codependency keeps things the same. It fears change. We call this homeostasis in family systems or in systems theory, right? that tendency to change back to what is normal. The way that I've been saying it for the last few months is that, Healthy behavior will feel wrong to almost everybody at every stage, right? When you're ready to level up to the next next stage of mental health, it's going to feel wrong to you. You're going to feel guilt. You're going to feel fear. You're going to feel shame. The people around you are going to tell you that you're wrong, tell you that you're crazy, tell you that you're headed off in the wrong direction. If this were not true, we would all just get better. So as you think about this, if you're the non-identified patient, if you're listening to this, watching this, because you, you have somebody in your life, a child or somebody else in your life that you love, that's struggling with addiction, I will tell you that the best way to understand their issues is to look at yours and understand yours first. In codependency, it becomes a condition that supports another's addiction in a complementary role. You are codependent with the addict. right? You're functioning in such a way to support each other. And it's back and forth, by the way. I have never to this day met somebody suffering from substance use disorder who also didn't have a significant amount of codependency. And the thing that a codependent person shares with somebody abusing substances is that it the solution is outside of them. See, for the addict... The solution is alcohol. I ingest alcohol or drugs and I feel better. For the codependent, I control or change or fix somebody else and I feel better. Like my wife often says, and I've heard her say it a couple of times in the last week, some people snort drugs and she snorts people. Codependency has expanded into a definition which describes dysfunctional patterns of living and problem solving developed during childhood by family rules. It's essentially an attachment fracture. It's basically an attachment wound. It's when people don't, you know, I I just saw the Barbie movie and I could talk about um, the Velveteen Rabbit and I could talk about uh, Pinocchio. They're all the same story. And if you haven't seen the Barbie movie, pause this for the next 30 seconds or so. They're all about becoming human, becoming real. And what do you have to do in all those is you have to take the good and the bad together. You have to learn to feel. You have to face the dilemma in life and take no shortcuts. I've often talked about addiction being like a magic wand. Imagine giving a magic wand to to a five-year-old. How would you feel about that if a if a five-year-old in your life was handed a magic wand? My answer to that question is it would terrify me. There was actually an a, a episode in part of the movie of The Twilight Zone that, that showed something like this. It's a bad idea to hand, hand children a magic wand. But now contrast that with what if you handed a magic wand to a wise, venerable soul? Somebody who'd lived a long life, who developed discipline, who was compassionate, who was grounded, who was safe, who was wise. You would feel a lot more at ease. Maybe not perfect, but a lot more at ease, Right? Everybody needs to have a relief from pain. Everybody needs to escape sometime. We can't always be working, right? Play is an important part of a balanced life. We 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 all need that. But for children, because of their development, and for people that suffer from this disorder, from this disease, the the, the draw to use that magic wand compulsively, no matter what the consequences, is too great too great so it's just it, it's, it's a life out of balance it's another way to think of addiction just simply out of balance codependency is a lay term that can be applied to various forms and styles in relating to others where there's a lack of self a lack of personhood and what a lack of personhood creates in relationships is a lack of intimacy And all of you that are listening have this. All of you that are watching have these issues. Every one of you. I have these issues. And until you accept that and deal with that and grapple with that, life will continue to treat you unfairly, at least in your own mind. This lack of self, this lack of healthy intimacy... Feels like over connection, over identification, and specifically in our program, we use so much experiential therapy because I think it it because people suffering from addiction or codependency are, are are so capable of justifying and rationalizing, intellectualizing away their issues, and that's because of shame, right? And experiential therapy does two things that are wonderful. First of all, it, it exposes the issues without the person knowing it right you engage somebody in an exercise in an activity in our case in small group living nomadic camping you involve somebody in that kind of environment their issues are going to become apparent they're they're going to show up that's the first thing that does the second thing that it does is experiential therapy or experiential work also heals through experience and not just through words right to to walk into a therapist. The reason that I ask you folks to go to Codependence Anonymous, because first of all, it's just a good idea. But like I say often, the reason we want you to go to Codependence Anonymous or Al-Anon, if for nothing else, see what it feels like to walk into a room of strangers and have to tell some part of your personal story to them. And what's the experience? The experience is that you might be judged. Right. And if you're 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 lucky and and good groups, good therapists will demonstrate this. If you're lucky and you walk into the right group into the right therapist's office, they won't judge you. That is the experiential healing. This is all about shame and guilt, folks. This is all about not knowing how to be a person and deal with the guilt that comes from setting boundaries and saying no from not finding your meaning, your connection. Talk therapy is, is, talk therapy is a process of helping the unconscious to become conscious. Spoken communication is invaluable, yet at the same time limited in helping us become aware of our inner life and our unconscious ways of relating to each other. Experiential therapy, as I mentioned, th- those techniques are in action and externalizing and resolving inner developmental conflicts by recreating personal stories from the past and present circumstances and transforming them into tolerable life experiences. Mark Felber said that. So we use psychodrama and role plays. We don't use equestrian therapy, but that can work. Working with animals, sand tray, play therapy. Of course, our version is wilderness therapy. Recreation or eventual therapy can be helpful. Ropes courses, initiatives or games, art therapy. Anything that engages the full body. Anything that that isn't just asking for information and self-report. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the 12th step, but I'm most importantly going to talk about what the principles are. So I'm going to read the 12 steps. For those of you that know them, this is going to be a little bit of, of just review for you. But for those of you who don't know what they are, I'll talk about them. Here are the 12 steps. Number one, we admitted to ourselves that we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives are becoming unmanageable, that things are getting out of control. Step two, we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity that there's something bigger than us. One of my favorite quotes from a recovering alcoholic was that the difference between God and me, he said, was that God never thinks that he's me. When we are in our codependency, when we are in our addiction, we think that it's up to us. The whole world relies on us. Nothing will go well unless we do it. I know I can relate to that. Step number three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. We learned to accept, really. In, in Buddhism, they call it radical acceptance. In Christianity, and Judaism, in Islam, and other faiths, they call it faith. But it's accepting life. It's accepting that I have, a, a some people call it a, 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 an allergy to substances, to alcohol. That when I take one drink, I lose my ability to to make decisions and i i drink again and i drink more and i drink more and i drink more i have plans to go to work and i end up doing cocaine right i'm married in a, in a monogamous relationship and i go out and have sex with lots of people to to fill that that ego that that need that deficit left in childhood Number four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. This is where it gets fascinating. I have so much respect for the founders of AA and the fact that they figured this stuff out on their own. Made a searching and fearless moral moral inventory of ourselves. Step four. Number five, these kind of go together, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to at least one other person, another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. So we confess them. Just think about that. The founders of AA figured out that there was some connection between the guilt and the shame of mistakes, of being human, of confessing them to one other person. By the way, it's important that the person you confess it to is capable of holding it, holding you with compassion and non-judgment. But we weren't raised that way. We thought that mistakes should be met with judgment. And that will keep us on the straight and narrow. That if I make a mistake, if I confess to it, if I admit to it, there's a punishment. Some toll is exacted. And that will be the motivation. In this spiritual program of AA, they understand that it's unburdening ourselves. It's confessing. that The very act, the letting it go. Going on to number step number six. We were entirely ready to have God remove all these, these deficits of character. Seven, humbly had asked them to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them. So now that that list of wrongs becomes very specific and very personal. Step number nine, made direct amends to, to such people wherever possible, except when to do so when, and injure them or others. I have known people in recovery who have taken this step so very seriously and have taken months to seek out the people in their lives and to to make amends, to apologize, to be accountable, to not ask for forgiveness. Right, that, that, That's the difference between asking for, for forgiveness and making amends or making an apology is when I, when I make an amends or make an apology, I'm not asking for me to feel better. I feel better because I'm admitting to my issue and I'm giving you the gift of acknowledging it, of naming the pain that I've caused you. Step number 10, continue to take a personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I've said this to groups before. In fact, some groups practice a 10th step group all the time, often. And I've said, what if everybody on earth just practiced the 10th step? I'm going to read it again. Continue to take a personal inventory. In other words, looked at themselves, looked at myself. And when I was wrong, promptly admitted it. Imagine the peace that would come over families and communities and societies if this were practiced. Step number 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and his power to carry that out. It starts to sound very religious, and for a lot of people who have been raised in religion and have experienced toxic, high-demand religions, who have been in religions where there's a, a lot of shame and guilt that is promoted. This is where the 12 steps can become very difficult for those people with those experiences. But again, the, 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 the idea of God, the idea of a higher power can be very nebulous. It can be anything or anybody. For me, it is the universe. It is the world and the universe beyond that. It is life itself. Step number 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. So, service to other people is a critical part of this. And that's a part of a community. And that gives you meaning, something bigger than yourself. That's what the 12 steps are about. Now, the problem with the 12 steps is that they are often implemented by alcoholics and drug addicts and sex and love addicts and gambling, gambling addicts and technology addicts, right? The people, in other words. And so what can happen is that these, this, this idea, this is the 12 steps are something that we choose to, to follow because we see a need, because we want to feel better. Because the person sitting across from us or introducing them to us is sharing with us their experience, their strength, their hope that has come out of this, the practice of these principles in this program. But again, forcing, debating, arguing, convincing, demanding, using power, threat, shame itself as a way to, 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 to force, to instill these steps, these principles into another person does not work. At Evoke, we want the 12 steps to be introduced to all of our participants, all the families. Because for some people, this is the way. I have some people come to me in private practice over the years and they say, I, I don't know if I'm an addict or an alcoholic. I don't know if I if I qualify for that, that moniker. And my response is, okay, that's that's fine. Let's work on you and your life and your whole self. And oftentimes, for, for a lot of people, that's enough for them to experience joy and meaning and connection to, to function well. But for some people, I say, adherence to these 12 steps and this program is as close to connect connected to, to, to life-saving, to, to life-support as you can imagine. So if you're wondering, am I, do I fit, do I qualify for this? My response is try therapy, try self-help, attend some meetings, listen to podcasts, read my books, you know, do, do the work. And if that works to, to, to create balance and joy and connection and meaning and a healthy relationship with whatever it is you might be struggling with, wonderful. If not, then you know that there's a program to go to that's a little bit more structured, a little bit more formalized, and that has amazing success. So all of the debates, folks, all the debates about recovery approaches are just a distraction. They're noise. They're static. The principles involved in the 12 steps are, are in all of psychology and all of mental health training and teaching. I listed the principles here as I saw them. The 12 step principles embedded in the steps control versus transcendence. Tell me, as a parent, you can't relate to that. That desire, that impulse to control, in this case, often a child, somebody else, so that you can feel well. I teach this all the time that so many parents think that the unhappiness that they're experiencing is caused by the child or somebody that they care about who's suffering. And while that might be true for today, ultimately it is our job to make our own serenity, our own peace, our own happiness our responsibility instead of somebody else's. If I relegate my joy, my my, my, my serenity, my peace of mind, my meaning to somebody else, I will forever remain a victim and powerless to life. Carl Jung said it in, in, in sort of a way. He said, we will call it fate. Right. If we don't make the conscious, the unconscious conscious, if we don't become aware of our own issues, we will refer to it as fate, and forever remain a victim to that. It's a day at a time. Right. Learning to be present in the moment, and take it a day at a time. Learning to feel, and again, this is this is consistent with being enlightened, being mentally healthy. And being in recovery. Recovery is just that you're on the path. That's all it means is that you're trying. That you're working on yourself. That you're taking however small and however slow you're taking small steps toward your larger, your your giant self as Khalil Gibran calls it. Surrender and humility are the third set of principles that I talk about. I've talked about that. There is a, a humility, a teachability. And in, although I don't identify as a somebody who suffers from substance use disorder, definitely I, I do identify with somebody who suffers from codependency, this idea of surrender and humility applies to me in my life to not be so sure, to not be absolute in my convictions, to be open, to be learning, to be growing to accept the fact that I don't have all the answers, that I don't have it all figured out. The next principle is vigilance. This is something, again, I I hear debates about this. I've even used some terms I'm quite aware of that some people might find offensive. I've used the term addict and alcoholic as a sort of shorthand to describe people that suffer from substance use disorder, and it's often referred to, people are referred to that within the 12-step community. But there is some, when somebody says at a meeting, hi, my name is Brad, I'm an alcoholic, even if I haven't had a drink in 25 years, they're saying, I have to maintain a certain kind of vigilance about my relationship with alcohol. If I don't, I am at risk. Again, my friend, that, that, that friend who identifies as an alcoholic, who shared with me some time ago that the, the difference between him and God is that he never thinks that he's God excuse me, God never thinks that he's him. That same person with regard to the vigilance said, if I found out today, if I were to discover today, he said, after 20 years of sobriety, if I was to discover today that I'm not an alcoholic, the first thing that I would do is go have a drink. Vigilance is saying, I need to work on this. Vigilance is saying, there's something I have to account for in my, in my personality, in my construct, in my psyche, in my genetics, in my brain. And all of us can relate to that. To recognize the predisposition to consider that as we make our choices. Participation in rituals and group support and community is all about finding that belonging, finding that meaning. Getting rid of the shame by disclosing our secrets. There's a phrase in recovery that says you're only as sick as your secrets. And they don't mean, of course, that the secret itself is sick. They just mean, Keeping the secrets is the problem. You don't have to tell everybody everything, but you have to tell one person everything in this model. You have to tell somebody about your darkness. Because it's only in that moment that you confess to your darkness that you have the opportunity to be loved just as you are. Right? Self-esteem is not convincing yourself. If, if people tell you you're a good parent, a good person... Don't believe them. Don't believe them. They're just trying to make you feel better. The fact of the matter is, you're sometimes good and you're sometimes bad. You're sometimes wise, you're sometimes ignorant. You're sometimes disciplined and you're sometimes irrational. You're sometimes generous and you're sometimes stingy. And self is getting rid of our those secrets is 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 getting in touch with your humanness. That's what Pinocchio. Had to do. He had to own up. It's empathic treatment without judgment. the The goal of of of, of the twelve steps is non judgment, essentially. Now, almost in 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 contrast to or in reaction to, a man by the name of Doctor Robert Schwebel came up with something called the Seven Challenges. It gets pitched sometimes as an alternative to the 12 steps, but I see them as completely compatible. Compatible. In fact, I think the seven challenges, if not adopted, render the the, the 12 steps or 12-step approach futile. And this is what he said. And I'm going to teach a little bit about this because it seems the language that he uses in the seven challenges is so obvious that it might be missed. He says, the first one, We decided to open up and talk honestly about ourselves and about alcohol and other drugs. Step two, we looked at what we liked about alcohol and other drugs and why we were using them. Step three, or challenge three, we looked at our use of alcohol or other drugs to see if it has caused harm or could cause harm. Harm. Challenge four, we looked at our responsibility and the responsibility of others for our problems. Challenge five, we thought about where we were de- seemed to be headed, where we wanted to go, and what we wanted to accomplish. Challenge six, we made thoughtful decisions about our lives and about our use of alcohol and other drugs. Step seven, we followed through on our decisions about our lives and drug use. If we saw problems, we went back to earlier challenges and mastered them. This is just about getting rid of the defenses. And, and if you're a treatment professional or a parent, it's about not provoking the defenses. We actually invited Dr. Robert Schwebel out to talk to our team some years ago. And we were were hosting a a clinical weekend, two-day weekend, with all of our team. There were probably 30 or 40 people there. And when he presented the seven challenges, it seemed to be common sense to us because we had a a good knowledge base and attachment-based therapy and motivational interviewing. And it was getting time for lunch, and I was moderating the day. And I said, "Hey, Doctor Schwab, we have to go to we have to go to lunch. We're a little bit over time, so we have to get to lunch, and we can finish the activities and the you know some of the exercises later on after lunch." He said, "I just want to do one quick exercise before lunch." And I said, "Fine, I'll, I'll volunteer." And he said, "I'm coming into treatment for you, and I'm going to present as a client might." And he started, and he said, "I don't have a problem," and I said, "Okay." He said, my drug usage is not a problem. I do it because I like it. I said, okay. I hear you. I'm not here to convince you that it's not. Sounds like you maybe think that I have an opinion contrary to that. And I'm just here to talk to you about your life. Again, like Jung says, about your whole life and what's going on. And after less than two minutes, Dr. Schweibel stopped and said, I've never had a team that got it so well as this team. I've never in my, in my years had to go this well. And that's because, like I said, we are steeped in motivational interviewing and attachment based therapy. Motivator, motivational interviewing is a book by Miller and Rolnick. And I highlighted some of the principles here. Confrontation is not yelling anger or self-centered. It must come from a place of love, or client-centeredness, to be trustworthy. In other words, confrontation, according to Miller and, and Rolnick, is saying, I see you saying that you want to live a a, a a life where you can go out and have fun, but I also see you here making choices that prevent that from happening. It's just simply pointing out the cognitive dissonance. They talk about how confrontation provokes defenses, that to try to control what somebody thinks, to try to manage somebody, to try to confront their their belief systems head-on often causes them to dig in more, to become more fortified. We don't argue. We don't try to manage parents. We don't try to use shame and fear to control you to make decisions with your children, nor do we try to do that with your children. We encourage you to take a wheel-see attitude. Just to stay awake, to open your eyes to look at your participation with your child, with their symptoms, to be open to a new way of thinking about it and to explore that. Harm reduction is a model that suggests that you can treat people who are suffering from substance use disorder by helping them to manage the alcohol and drug usage or whatever the addiction is. And it works for some people. I'm just going to say that. And there are some people that it does not work for. You can go to harmreduction.org if you want to learn more about it. Refuge Recovery is a mindfulness-based addiction recovery community that utilizes Buddhist philosophy as the foundation, right? So it's about mindfulness. I mean, think about it. Mindfulness is the opposite of an addictive behavior because mindfulness is presence with what is and addictive behaviors are an escape from what is. One of my favorite definitions of addictive behavior is an attempt... To, be, to not be present in my own life. And mindfulness is the opposite. So you kind of combat it with its, its core energy or impulse. RefugeRecovery.org is a great resource. There's also Smart Recovery. teaches self-empowerment and self-reliance. My point about these, I'm not going to go into every one of them, my point about all of these is that whatever works, whatever works, but underneath it all, underneath it all, no matter what the approach, we're looking for some kind of surrender, some kind of recognition from the individual, whether it be parent, the, the non-identified patient, spouse, sibling, or the person suffering from the substance use disorder themselves to get to the point where they recognize that their best thinking got got them here and that they might be open to some new ways, some new uh, new ideas. And if you are the non-identified patient, if you don't identify as the one suffering from, from substance use disorder or from other addictions, work on your disease. Work on your mental health. Work on your attachment issues. Work on your sense of self. Work on intimacy through communication skills, which are kind of the, the, the building blocks. The In science, we would call them the operas, operationalization of... Intimacy, what does it look like? What does it sound like? It looks like healthy communication tools and skills. And at the end of the day, if you wonder, if if your child, if your spouse, if your sibling is so good at talking the talk, just take a step back and take a a, a we'll see approach. One of my favorite things about willingness therapy specifically is that People will come sometimes with a knowledge of the slogans, even the 12 steps they have memorized. A whole head full of substance abuse recovery ideas and concepts and slogans. But when I see them struggling inside of the group, when I see them struggling with the rain or the snow or the bugs or the heat or whatever it is, with the other group members, with the staff, what I will often say to them is, I hear you talk about recovery. I hear you talk about surrender. But I don't see it. I don't feel it. What I feel, what I sense is that control. You still trying to be in control and thinking you know. Thinking that you're terminally unique and that you have all the answers and none of this applies to you. And in that sense, that's when I take a a we'll see attitude. I will just wait and watch you. Parents will always ask, you know, uh, any approach. Spouses will ask me, siblings will ask me, if I say this, you know, will it work? And I think what they're thinking is, will this change the other person? And if that's what that means, if that's the question you're asking, you are engaged in your own addiction, your own codependency. We are agnostic at Evoke. We want all of our clients to be introduced to the 12 steps and we are willing to meet them where they're at. The idea or the approaches that try to hammer in one approach, one idea and one concept are just as deficient as the addict themselves. That that is the way that addictive thinking works, is that I know the answers and I'm gonna force you, I'm gonna force it onto you. So we take the whatever works attitude. And the fact of the matter that it's all the same work. All of this is the same work. Treating depression, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, which which addiction mirrors in so many ways. Addiction, codependency, attachment wounding. It's all the same work because we're treating the whole person, the whole personality, and not just the symptom. All right, folks. I will... Go over upcoming announcements and save your questions for the next broadcast. My two books, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be You are available on Amazon and Audible. If you want to do a deep dive into your own work, I cannot recommend this strongly enough. Finding You is Evoke's offering. We run intensive, five-day intensive programs outside of Park City, Utah. The next available opening is September 20th. We also have an online opening. An online version of this, September 15th through 17th is that offering. It's half the time, a third of the cost, and you don't have to travel. We are returning to you if you've been to a Finding You. October 25th through 29th is that offering. I'll be running that one. And then we're going to go back to the UK in the spring and be running another weekend, another Finding You weekend in the UK. We also have custom Finding Connection for couples and also for parents and Finding Family. So just contact intensives at evoketherapy.com for more information. We have support groups for current and alumni families. October, excuse me, August 17th at 7 p.m. is that next offering. Once a month, we have an alumni-only meeting for those that are a little bit farther along in their process. August 22nd at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time is our next offering. And then we have an intensive support group once a month, September 12th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time is that next offering. Just go to our website look at family involvement for more information on that. If you would like to do an in-person, multi-day visit with your child, we have family track options available mid-program or end-of-program visits. You can also do them if you're not, if you don't even have a child in the program. So this is a multi-day wilderness experiential therapeutic uh, track for families. Contact admissions at evoketherapy.com to find out more. We have evoke coaches who are trained in the attachment-based model for parents, couples, families, or individuals any issue in life that you want to work through, you can contact coaching at evoketherapy.com to find out more. We ask all current families to attend at least six of the following, any combination of the following 12-step support groups, alanon.org, anonorg coda.org, familiesanonymous.org, or adultchildren.org. You can also go to refuge recovery.org, which I talked about tonight, or nami.org, the National Alliance on Mental Illness to get free classes and resources in your area. All these broadcasts are available on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. Just search finding you and evoke therapy podcast or go to soundcloud.com on your computer and find us there. You can also go to evokes YouTube channel and watch the live, the rebroadcast of these live episodes with the video and slides there. You can find evoke therapy programs and me, Dr. Brad Reedy on Twitter threads and Instagram using the handles at evoke therapy and at Dr. Brad Reedy, respectively. And you can find the Evoke Intensives program on Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives. On Facebook, you can find us by searching Evoke Therapy programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives. And of course, the Evoke Therapy blog has wonderful content added each week. If you want to give back for people that can't afford treatment or if you need help, the three charitable partners that we work with are ChooseMentalHealth.org, SkyIsTheLimitFund.org, and EvokeFamilyFoundation.org. My next broadcast will be August 22nd next week a week from today at 6 p.m mountain time i'll be doing a live q a you can always send in questions topics suggestions feedback to webinar at evoketherapy.com all of the pre-submitted questions will be the first ones that i address and you can listen to them you can listen to me uh respond to them live or on the podcast all right folks i hope this was a helpful point of contact giving you a way to think about the 12 step or recovery in the wilderness in ways that you may not may not have thought about it in the past and as always, and this goes to the heart of what I've been talking about today, For, on behalf of the people that you love and the people that love you, thank you for showing up and being willing to learn and being willing to do your work. Have a great evening, and I'll talk to you a week from tonight. Take care. Bye-bye. Man!